Here we go. Welcome to Moving Art, where we explore topics and themes related to the field of the performing arts. Whether it's film, theater, music, or dance, I hope there's something here that appeals to you. Hi, I'm Melissa Kawasoe, and I'm from Singapore's only public performing arts library, the Library at Esplanade. This is the first installment of a four-part film talk series in which I'll chat about various topics in film, ranging from genres to fun facts about the one invention that changed the way we look at mass entertainment in the 20th century. In this installment, we're going to explore the evolution of documentaries. Now, in the past, when you think about documentaries, most people would think of something like this. Rising like mist from the grave, gliding noiselessly through solid walls and doors, ghosts have been woven into our consciousness for centuries. A PBS Discovery Channel snooze fest, or have Sir David Attenborough's voice in their heads. But do you actually know what makes a documentary a documentary? Here's a bit of film history to set the stage. Let's go back in time to 1895. We'll start with the Lumiere brothers. August and Louis Lumiere were French inventors and manufacturers of photographic equipment. They created the very first motion picture in 1895 called Workers Leaving the Lumiere Factory. But the film created by them, which shocked audiences at the time, was The Arrival of a Train. Now, as the title suggests, the motion picture simply features footage of a train arriving at a train station in the French coastal town of La Ciotat. Why is this such a big deal? Well, remember what it was like to watch a first 3D film where you would put your hands out in front of you to try and touch or catch the flying objects headed your way? This was probably the equivalent to an audience in the 1800s sitting before a large screen and seeing a life-sized train rushing towards them. As matter-of-fact as it sounds, when this silent 50-second short film was publicly screened in 1896, the first audiences to see the film apparently screamed and ran out of the theaters because the image of a moving train heading directly towards them was nothing ever experienced before. Early films like this from the Lumiere brothers became referred to as actuality films and are regarded as the earliest form of documentary filmmaking. Other examples from the brothers include The Gardener, Baby's Breakfast, and Jumping onto a Blanket. As the titles of these films suggest, they are as you would imagine. A baby having breakfast, a person jumping onto a blanket. <laughs> you get the picture. The recognition of documentary as a distinct film form came about in the 1920s and early 30s. According to Bill Nichols, an American film critic who wrote the book Introduction to Documentary, this was when the documentary found its four theoretical pillars in the form of display and documentation, poetic experimentation, narrative storytelling, and rhetorical oratory. Documentary makers started making a conscious effort to record their subjects to reflect reality through edited footage to explain what is taking place on screen. Better yet, if all that can be achieved with some level of visual artistry. 
If we follow Nichols' definition, the first official documentary would probably be Robert Flaherty's 1922 Nanook of the North, an ethnographic look at the harsh life of Canadian Inuit Eskimos living in the Arctic. The film tells the story of Inuit hunter Nanook and his family as they struggle to survive the harsh conditions of Canada's Hudson Bay region. Scenes of the family hunting, building an igloo, and basically how they go about their day make up the plot of the entire film. Now, although some of the film's scenes were staged as Flaherty's original footage caught fire, it was the first film to add a narrative to the actual footage. The Europeans who lived 500 years ago knew only a very small part of the world. By the 1950s and 60s, documentaries went beyond only covering current affairs and biographies. As the television audience boomed, TV documentaries pushed the non-fictional form in new and sometimes radical ways. Animal documentaries made their debut, combining striking images with wildlife audio tracks helmed by memorable presenters to engage viewers. An example of this would be Sir David Attenborough's ZooQuest, which was among the first TV series to feature animals in the wild. Here's a clip from one of the episodes filmed in 1956 as a joint venture with London Zoo. A very young David Attenborough has collected specimens to take back to the zoo and gains the trust of Charlie, an orangutan, allowing him to feed him a tasty treat. To begin with, he was a bit irritated at not being given his food directly. Then I decided to trust him sufficiently to put my finger right in his mouth. An honorable mention goes out to dressmaker Abraham Zapruder, who in 1963 filmed two of his employees at a grassy area a block away from his clothing company while thousands of people greeted President John F. Kennedy in downtown Dallas. The scene is gay down here with uh, red, white, and blue budding hanging all over Main Street. The Dallas Police Department working with a fully augmented force to dispel any fear that unfortunate incidents do not occur on this trip. Zapruder's 486 frames of silent but colored 8mm footage has been called the most important 26 seconds of film in history, as he was the only photographer to capture the entire assassination of JFK that fateful day. In that footage, we see the moment John F. Kennedy gets shot, bullets striking his neck and head as he slumps over towards Jackie O, who holds on to him before climbing over to the back of the convertible's trunk. The documentation of this epic moment in history has since been zoomed in, freeze-framed, studied, and replicated in many films and documentaries on the JFK assassination. Fast forward to the modern day. Nowadays, documentaries are often used as a potent way to challenge the truth and address tough issues, which is a vital part of the cultural conversation. In Bill Nichols's book, Introduction to Documentary, he groups the many voices of modern documentaries into several modes of representation that act like sub-genres. Here's a brief summary by the author on why this book is insightful. It's insightful and it offers a fresh take on the history of documentary, and I introduce and explain six different modes of documentary. All documentaries make use of one or more of them. While there are six modes, the ones most documentary audiences will probably be most familiar with are poetic, participatory, 
and expository modes. Here's a caveat. Modes serve as a base for a specific style of storytelling, and not all docus confine themselves to one mode. Nowadays, it's not unusual to see a documentary featuring multiple modes, but I'll briefly go through some examples so you can identify some key characteristics of these modes when you watch your next docu. The poetic mode uses avant-garde techniques to evoke a certain mood or feeling. It provides the audience with an emotional perspective on a subject through the use of rhythmic visuals that present an abstract and subjective interpretation of reality. There is no traditional narrative, no focus on continuity, and an example of this will be Kevin McDonald's Life in a Day, a documentary shot by filmmakers all over the world and produced by Ridley Scott. It serves as a time capsule to show future generations what it was like to be alive on the 24th of July, 2010. If you're wondering why that particular day, it was chosen because it was the first Saturday after the World Cup. On a more relatable note, you'll see the poetic mode in high-budget ads seeking to elicit an emotional response. The one I personally found memorable, that some of you might remember as well, was the 1997 ad, How Long is a Swatch Minute, where milestones in human lives and history are measured by time units. Participatory or interactive documentaries are defined by the interaction between the filmmakers and their subjects. They often present the filmmaker's version of the truth as the truth, and they focus on direct engagement with their interviewees, capturing real emotional responses and interactions. Most of Michael Moore's works are participatory, with elements of observational and performative modes. I'm here to open up an account. Okay, what type of account would you like? Um, yeah, I want the account where I can uh, get the uh, free gun. Okay. You do a CD no, and we'll hand handle. you a gun. We have a whole brochure here that you can look at. Mm-hmm. Okay. 2002's Bowling for Columbine explores what Moore argues is the primary cause of the Columbine High School Massacre in 1999, the ease of access to guns in America. To drive that point home, he orchestrates a number of eyebrow-raising encounters, such as getting a free gun after opening a bank account and demanding a refund from Kmart for the bullets lodged in victims' bodies. Twenty nineteen's Tell Me Who I Am is about Alex Lewis who loses his memory after an accident at age 18 and has to rely on his twin brother Marcus to fill him in about his past. But soon, he begins to realize that his brother has been hiding a dark secret about their childhood. I, from day one, painted a picture of a normal family, but none of that was true. It was a fantasy that I was creating for him. The Lewis brothers published their story in a 2013 book in which Marcus left out many details too painful and appalling to recount. In this adaptation directed by Ed Perkins, Alex learns about and reacts to these details on camera, so this film functions as a continuation of the book. And finally, something more lighthearted for our last example of a participatory mode docu. 
2020's My Octopus Teacher by directors James Reed and Pippa Ellish. I remember the day when it all started, seeing this really strange thing. Told from the perspective of a diver who befriends an octopus, and no, not in a Disney's Little Mummy fashion, it's a touching story that delves into the inner life and mind of octopi. I'm a sucker for stories that tug at the heartstrings, and after watching this, you'll definitely gain respect for how magnificent octopi are. Onwards to expository mode documentaries. These docus set up a specific point of view or argument about a subject and often feature an authoritative style voiceover. The cinematography is the co-host, responsible for documentative footage that supports and strengthens the spoken argument. They are heavily researched and constructed to inform and persuade the audience to agree with a certain point of view. 1922's Nanook of the North would fall under this category, and expository docus are arguably the format most familiar with today's audience, thanks to the BBC's The Blue Planet and Netflix's large documentary library. It's not every day that a zookeeper went to prison for murder for hire. Watching recent cult favorite 2020's Tiger King, Murder, Mayhem, and Madness, and its cast of compelling characters is like walking through a Halloween horror maze. It's so crazy and appalling, yet you can't get enough of it. The series centers around the life of Joe Exotic, who is an eclectic zookeeper, entrepreneur, and musician, and the small but interconnected society of big cat conservationists. Hailed as one of Netflix's most successful documentaries to date, this series leaves you mind blown because just as you start to empathize or root for a character, something blows up in your face. You're gonna have to kill me to shut me up. If there's something lamentable about this series, it's how Tiger King exposes the human squabbles and moral flaws underpinning the exotic animal community in America. It begs the question if raising awareness of animal welfare was even an objective of the show in the first place. There are more captive tigers in the U.S. than there are in the wild throughout the world. Animal people are nuts, man. They're all crazy. And if you thought Tiger King was crazy, you have to watch 2019's Don't F With Cats, Hunting an Internet Killer. I wasn't sure what to expect with this one, especially when the synopsis is, a group of online justice seekers tracked down a guy who posted a video of himself killing kittens. What begins as a spotlight on internet vigilantism, a divisive phenomenon of our age and time, quickly escalates into a gruesome murder committed in search of fame. These are the things, the telltale sign of somebody that's gonna become a serial killer. We had a ticking time bomb on our hands. Twisted story that keeps twisting. He's going to get the attention of the world now. This one will seriously give you the creeps. Okay, I'm starting to notice a trend here. Participatory or expository, the documentaries I've highlighted are so far pretty twisted in different ways. By no means do I only watch these genres, but I feel they're all worth highlighting to depict the shift in trends and documentary storytelling techniques. Let's finish up on a happier note. The North Sea is definitely one of the most dangerous environments in the world. 2018's Last Breath 
is about a diver who is stranded at the bottom of the North Sea with only five minutes of oxygen and no chance of rescue for at least 30 minutes. The original participants deliver emotional first-hand accounts of the incident that changed their lives. Okay, boys, taking you down now. Although this analogy is a shallow one, no pun intended, I liken this docu to the real-life version of the movie Armageddon, but underwater. Arguably, the storyline has more depth to it compared to Armageddon, and I promise you, you'll be inspired by human ingenuity and courage displayed in this documentary. I hope I've intrigued you enough to check out the documentaries featured in this installment of Moving Art Film Talk. As a parting shot, let's have author Bill Nichols explain why documentaries are gaining in popularity now. Over to you, Bill. They're not didactic, they entertain. Documentary filmmakers are good storytellers. They know how to use music, editing, smart choices of topics, and finding intriguing characters drawn from real life. Some of the titles I've mentioned are available for loan at our public libraries, so do check out the catalog for more details. There are also resources on film, including filmmaking, available at the library at Esplanade. Thank you for tuning in, and I'll catch you again in the next one.